we observed the themes of Exodus that are employed by John the Apostle as he is given the vision of seven angels who are given seven plagues because in them, John says, the wrath of God is finished. John sees something like a sea of glass that is mixed with fire. I apologize and forgive me for not being potentially as clear as I would have liked to have been last week in explaining the sea and the fire. Very simply, the sea represents evil. Fire represents God's judgment. The sea of evil has been calmed by God's judgment. The sea, or the saints of God, stand with God on top of the sea, on top of evil. It has been defeated. And this is to represent not only our victory over sin, but as we'll talk about today, our agreement with God's judgment or our amen to God's judgment. We are not among those who are consumed by the fire of evil in the sea. Rather, we stand on the sea, atop with God. We are not in the sea. We are on top of the sea. We stand with God victorious over evil. The saints of all times sing a new song. It is a song of victory to God. Here it is. Marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Listen to this question. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Saints, in the coming verses, John will continue with his themes of Exodus as he uses the plagues inflicted upon Egypt as an example of God's judgment upon the world. But before the plagues, God uses the pen of John to encourage his people that his judgments that will come, that have, that are, and that will come upon the wicked, that they are righteous, true, and good. Though the righteous from the past the present and the future potentially, suffer for righteousness sake, we are encouraged to know that victory is already ours. Therefore, we need not fear what man can do to us. Victory belongs to us in Christ. It's interesting that in the very next vision that John receives, it shifts from the righteous to the wicked. Verse 5, after these things, I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Open is a powerful word. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. The time for judgment in last days, and we believe that last days has been since Christ rose from the dead, has come. We can say it in a present tense. For nearly two chapters now, um, here onward, we will see and only read of God's judgment upon the wicked. And as we do, saints, for the next almost two chapters, we will only be reading of God's judgment. And as we do, we, along with the saints of all centuries, are encouraged of at least three things. Number one, God is holy and all of his judgments are righteous and true. God is holy and all of his judgments are righteous and true. This is going to be, all of these are going to be flowing out of verses 5 through 8. 
<coughs> the introduction to the bowls that begin in verse 1 are now resuming, and they mark the beginning of a new vision. And in this case, they start a new series of visions. John says in verse 5, after these things I looked. Now, when John looks into the purposes of God, what does he see going on? The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven. All of those things. Temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven is open. John sees the temple of the tabernacle. It's open. Or here it is. The temple, which is the tabernacle of testimony. That, that's, that's the appropriate if you're translating it in Greek. I was not going to bore you with all the Greek language. But um, the temple, which is the tabernacle of testimony, open. Again, with his use of tabernacle language, John is once again continuing the themes of Exodus. He is calling his audience to make a connection between the tabernacle, which was in Israel in the wilderness, which is referred to as the tabernacle of testimony in the uh, Exodus themes. Or it is God's dwelling place of the testimony. We're going to get to what those things mean in a moment. In Exodus 38 and in Exodus 40, the vision that John is receiving is of that, that which is found in Exodus 38 and 40. The tabernacle of testimony, and it is open in heaven. Now, here's what we need to ask. John wants our minds to make this connection. We need to ask why. Whenever we see these allusions from the Old Testament, John is wanting us to, to say, here's the clue, now find out why. Why does God want his people to make the connection between the tabernacle with Israel and the tabernacle of testimony, which he sees open in heaven. What's the connection? Let's notice a few things. This will hopefully lead us to the rest of our sermon. Notice that first it is opened. Notice first, before we get to tabernacle and testimony, notice that it's opened. It's opened because God is sending out his angels to execute judgment. Has, is, and will. God's judgment is now open. The temple of the tabernacle, uh, let me say it this way, God's, God's last day judgments have been, are, and will be open. God has been judging, God is judging, and God will judge because these are the last days. The temple of, of the tabernacle, testimony, it refers to also a few other things. The presence of God, the holiness of God, and the law of God. All of these things. Let me not get ahead of myself. God is sending forth his angels for judgment because of man's hostility toward God. Let's clarify these things now. The tabernacle among Israel was a constant reminder that God was among them. He who heard the cry of Israel, the cry for a deliverer, came to deliver Israel through Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 8, God declares that it was he who led Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, through the desert. And that is this, the one who heard the cry is the one who delivered. The one who delivered is the one who remained. And he remained with his people all throughout their wilderness journey. God's presence was with his people. The tabernacle represented God is with us. The temple of the tabernacle also reminded people of God's holiness. 
Holiness is simply this. I could do a whole year on holiness. God's absolute moral perfection. God's absolute moral perfection. God reveals his absolute moral perfection through his law. We see the absolute moral perfection of God through his law. The temple of the tabernacle of the testimony refers to the holiness of God, which is revealed through his testimony, which is his law. The testimony that is spoken of is the law of God. God reveals his holiness through his law. Are you with me? All of these things are represented in the the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven being open. God is with us. God is holy. God reveals his holiness through his law. Why is the temple open? Because men have violated his law. Men have shown that they are hostile toward God and his law. And so therefore judgment is coming. Testimony, again, is a reference to the Ten Commandments. God's law is his testimony of holiness, his testimony of his absolute moral perfection. The law of God not only reflects the absolute perfection of God, but it also reflects what man requires of creatures made in his image. It not only reflects who God is, it reflects who God expects us to be. God's law, his testimony, not only reflects his holiness, it reflects the holiness that he expects out of those creatures made in his image, you and I. Leviticus 19.2, be holy, says the Lord, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. We all say, well, I cannot. We'll get to that in a moment. In Revelation 15.5, John is given a vision of God's temple and it's open. The presence of God, the holiness of God, the law of God are all represented by the temple of the tabernacle testimony. Open as God sends out his archangels to pour out his wrath on those who have offended him broken his law, or to say it another way, which we'll say throughout the sermon, who are hostile toward God. Revelation 6, I'm sorry, 15, 6. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, girded around their chests uh, with golden sashes. These seven angels are most likely archangels. Uh, And it's interesting, the way that they're dressed, they are dressed something like the Son of Man. And that is to say that they come in the name of the Son of Man. These archangels are those high-ranking angels. They have been given the responsibility to carry out the judgments of God. They have been commissioned by God to execute judgment in the name of God. John says, or says, and, and says, seven angels who had seven plagues, which could be understood as this. Seven angels who have been given authority over judgment as directed by God. Seven angels who have been given authority over judgment as directed by God. The only other place in Scripture outside of the Apocalypse where this phrase seven plagues appear is found in Leviticus chapter 6. If you want, you can kind of go back and forth because we're going to be there a little bit. Leviticus chapter 26, found in verse 18, 21, 24, and 28. Why, again, is God commissioning these angels to execute judgment by way of plagues? The answer for us is found in Revelation chapter 15, verse 4. It's the it's the only question asked in the song of victory. It's interesting. Look at verse four of Revelation 15. Who will not fear, O Lord? That should strike us. We're singing this song of victory. We are singing the song of victory as we stand with God over over evil And amen God's judgment. We sing this song. And as we do in the middle of it, we ask this question. I say we because this is our song. Who will not fear, O Lord? 
who will not glorify your name? For you alone are holy. The saints of God who are victorious over evil and who are standing with God in his judgment, we ask, we ask this question. Who, who wouldn't fear you? God, who wouldn't glorify your name? God, there is no one holy but you. It makes no sense that, that people would not worship you alone as being holy and alone as being worthy of worship. We ask this question. Why is heaven open? Why are the angels going out in judgment? It is precisely because of the answer to this question. Because there are some who are not fearing God. There are some who refuse to glorify his name. And there are some who will not see him as holy alone. Judgment is coming forth from God's throne because God is holy. And creatures made in his image for the purpose of giving the Holy One glory are not enjoying him and glorifying him as they have been created to do. They've directed their worship elsewhere. Uh, they've given glory to other things. They've seen other things as more precious and valuable than God. Therefore, saints, heaven is open and God is pouring out his wrath. Any worship that is not directed toward God is misdirected worship. This misdirection is a sin against the holiness and goodness of God. In Leviticus chapter 26, the use of the phrase seven plagues is repeated four times. And it's a warning to those who will not honor God and see him as holy. Seven times, seven times, if you don't honor God as holy. In the verses, God repeatedly says this. Those who don't see him as holy, follow me through this, please, are acting in hostility toward God. How does one act in hostility toward God? What would be the act that reveals hostility toward God? The Lord, in Leviticus 26, is giving Israel a number of laws leading up to Leviticus 26. But in the final verse, he calls Israel to worship him alone, and he does so by paraphrasing the first four commandments of God's Ten Commandments. Leviticus chapter 26 and verse 1, he says, You shall not make for yourselves idols, nor shall you set up for yourselves an image or a sacred pillar, nor shall you place a figured stone in your land and bow down to it, for I, the Lord, am your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord, he says. The commands echo the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. We are commanded to worship God alone. We are commanded not to worship idols. We are commanded not to take God's name in vain. We are commanded to honor God's holy day, the Sabbath. The Lord commands Israel not to set up anything externally or internally. To worship and bow down to. Because he says, I am the Lord your God. All men are held accountable to these commands. They are written on the hearts of every man. The Lord also commands Israel to keep its Sabbaths. To, to reverence his sanctuary. For God was among his people. When people come to the house of God for worship. On the Sabbath, they reverence God. When they don't come to worship on the Sabbath, they show hostility toward God. 
What is God communicating to his people? Something that we already know, but that we wrestle against, and it is simply this. God is holy, and that we should honor him as such. God is worthy of worship. Nothing else is worthy of worship. There is nothing of perfect, absolute moral character like God. Nothing is holy like God. God is creator of all things. He gives life and breath to all things. In God, we live and move and have our being. It is God who has made us and not we ourselves. God alone, therefore, is worthy of and you of all worthy of all praise and glory and honor. Amen. It's not just the fruit of our lips, though. It's in our living, in living lives of holiness in order to mirror his holiness. But we don't just give God lip service. We live in light of what we confess. Our holy God commands us through his law, which is a reflection of his holiness, to be holy in heart, mind and action. We are to be holy in reason, holy in our passions, holy in our actions, because God is holy and it is he who has made us to be holy. The angels are coming forth from the temple that is open to execute judgment on people who are hostile to all that God has commanded his people to be. Revelation 11, John alludes to Psalm 2, which asks the question, why do nations rage? Why do people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us burst their bonds and cast away cords from us, their cords from us. The wicked oppose God. They, they seek to cast off all of his restraints. His restraints are his laws as if the laws of God were wicked things and not holy things. Please follow me because the second point is going to bring all of this together, I think. Therefore, because they have acted in hostility against God and his holiness, he will pour out his wrath in form of plagues. On those who will not honor him as holy. In Leviticus 26, the commands of God were meant to draw God's people. When God gives these commands, it's meant to draw the righteous near. But it's also meant to harden the wicked. God's law, in his infinite wisdom, was the means by which he separates the sheep and the goats. The sheep come near, the goats run away. When God gives his law, the sheep draw near, the sheep draw near. The goats run away. Who will love and obey God? For God alone is holy. And those whose hearts have been cut by God's spirit. Those who deny it, their heart remains hard, hardened like stone. This, dear saints, is the background for the seven plagues here in Revelation. John sees the angels going out of heaven to execute God's judgment on the wicked, on those who are hostile toward God. They have been commissioned by God to execute judgment upon those who rebelled against God, not only of Israel then, but of Israel, oh, I'm sorry, not only of Israel then, but of the world today. Because all men know what is required by them, by the Creator. But they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What is the sin of all men? Uh, Paul tells us in Romans 1.25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Throughout history, from Cain, mankind who were judged in the flood, Pharaoh, Babylon, Rome, God has poured out 
his bowls of wrath, his bowls of judgment on those who will not honor him as holy. And all of this judgment is then, today, and tomorrow, if God wills for there to be a tomorrow. God's commands are good. God's commands are holy. They are right and they are true. But not because we say so. They are good because God is holy, holy, holy. Because God is perfectly holy. Exodus fifteen eleven. Who is like you, O Lord, among the nations, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in deeds, doing wonders? First Samuel 2, 2. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Revelation 15, 4. You alone are holy. Because God is of perfect moral character. Because God is holy. There is no act of God rooted in evil. Because there is no evil within God. Therefore, when he judges the wicked, he does so out of his holiness. The judgment of God then is justifiable because man has treated the holiness of God as wickedness. Why does this matter now? Let me slow down, because for the next two chapters, saints, we are going to see the holiness of God revealed in wrath upon the wicked. Do you know how long it takes me to get through, through two chapters of Scripture? For the next two chapters, we are going to be considering God pouring out judgment on the wicked. And as we do, we must not for one moment accuse God of any evil. Which leads us to our second point. We are men. All of the judgments of God. Because God is holy. Five through eight. The beginning of this sermon, I mentioned that, that God, the saints of God are envisioned as standing on the sea of glass, singing a song of victory to God. But standing on the sea, it has two, two meanings. Victory, yes. We are involved in this battle against uh, the beast. We are uh, standing victorious with Christ over the beast. We stand against the world, sin, and the devil. Um, we fight against our flesh, but our flesh is not our enemy. If our flesh was our enemy, then we would not be raised to new life. Um, we would not be given bodies. If flesh, if carnal carnality was the problem, we would not. Then bodies would be would be forever done away with. Our flesh is not the problem; it's sin. So the world, sin, and the devil. We fight against them, and we stand against our enemy, right? And we're also victorious over our enemy. The sea of evil is calm by God's judgment. But here's also what it means. Us standing on the sea not only means that we are victorious over evil, but it also means that we agree with all of God's judgments as being good, right, and holy. John envisions the church standing on top of the sea. We agree with God. Our agreement does not make God's judgment right. But God is absolutely morally perfect and all of his judgments are right and true. Therefore, all that God does is good. Because there is no evil within God. By his grace, we marvel at this, saints. We are afforded the undeserved benefit of standing on the sea rather than being in the sea, suffering God's wrath. We stand on the sea, giving an amen to God's righteous judgment of the wicked. I'm going to say it again for nearly two weeks or I'm sorry, for nearly two chapters. 
we will be considering God's display of his holiness by pouring out wrath and judgment upon the wicked. And when we do, and as we do, we must not accuse God of any wickedness. We must not get queasy when we consider the fate of the wicked. Who are the wicked? Well, we have answered that question, haven't we? There are those who are hostile toward God. What does hostility look like? Is hostility standing outside of a church with picket signs in protest against what that church teaches? Yes, it is. Thanks be to God, we're in such an isolated area, they can't find us. Is, Is hostility towards God not staying outside but storming inside the church during worship and committing acts of violence against its members? Yes, it is. But we could think of a number of acts that would be viewed as hostility toward God that are acted upon the church. We saw these in Revelation, didn't we? The seven churches are experiencing physical persecution. But we must not isolate hostility to God as only being random acts of violence against the church. Hostility toward God is expressed not always in direct opposition to the church. Let's go back to Leviticus 26. God spells out what hostility toward him is. Here's where they are. It is not worshiping God alone as the one who is worthy of worship. Didn't say standing outside with picket signs. Although that is one one way. Hostility toward God is giving worship to created things who are not worthy of worship or and that are not worthy of worship. That could be a who or a what. Hostility toward God is God says this in Leviticus, not honoring God on his day. The Sabbath, but treating the Sabbath as indistinct from any other day, meaning that there is no difference between days. There is no such thing as a holy day. Hostility toward God is showing no reverence for his sanctuary, the place of God's presence. Think about it, brothers and sisters. We don't know a lot of people who are violently, actively opposing his church, but we know a lot of people who fit the description of what I just described. That would be described as being hostile toward God. We don't know a lot of people who are gathering outside of the church to stop you from coming in. We also don't know a lot of people who who are in our lives who call us on the Lord's Day to say, don't go to church. Do you know anybody who would dare tell you, don't go to church today? That All of that is a a sham. Don't go. It's whatever word you want to, to fill in. Don't go. They might even say they believe in God. Those who you know that just fit this description. They might even say, I believe in God, which causes us, therefore, to not be as concerned about their soul as we should. They even use God in their language. I'm so glad that God. They're not opposing you. But they are being still hostile toward God. How? Well, we just said it, didn't we? They're not worshiping God alone. Rather, they have placed their worship in created things and not in the creator. We know this because of days like this. Rather than attending a place of worship to give God what is properly due to him, worship, they cast off his restraints. They cast off his laws and they see them as unnecessary, unbeneficial and inappropriate. 
as, as having an expiration date. Those commands of God, those laws of God. Uh, don't people know, doesn't the church know that there's a 21st century? Things have changed. In short, they see the laws of God as not being good and not being holy and not being for them. What does that uh, equal? What does that sum? Um, what does the sum of those kind of sentiments uh, add up to? It, it adds up to this hostility toward God. By which God will pour out his wrath. The, real, the reality is they are hostile toward God. They scoff at you. When you share the goodness of God and the commands of God, because and they're not just scoffing at you, they're scoffing at God. Believe in Christ. Trust in Christ. Uh, Go to a church. Sit under faithful teaching. (laughs) They're not scoffing at you, dear one. They're scoffing at the one who is giving us this, this command, God himself. That is, dear one, hostility toward God. If they continue in their hostility, hostility, they will suffer holy judgment from God. Pause. That should concern us. I'm sure it does, and it should. Let's go even a step further. That should also sadden us. It does, and it should. That may bring even some of us to tears. When we think about those who are right now actively hostile to, toward God by simply doing this, saying his laws are not for me, which equals they're not good. They're not holy. And I don't believe that they come from one who is holy. That has any right to tell me what I can and cannot do. You see that kind of hostility? It concerns us now. It may sadden us now. It may at one point bring us to tears. But there will come a time, a day, when it will not sadden us. When it will not concern us. When it will, in fact, not bring us to tears. John sees a time when we will stand with God as he has judged the wicked. As all evil Those who are hostile toward God are brought to a standstill that there will be no more opposition to God, that all of those who are hostile toward him are judged in fire and we will not shed a tear. We shed tears now. We're concerned now. We're saddened now. And dear one, you should be. But there will be a time when you will not be. That's inconceivable, isn't it? That those who we love will be judged And we will know of their judgment and we will not accuse God of any wickedness when he judges them. Instead, we will say they were hostile to God. God is holy and good in all of his judgments. Therefore, I I amen all that you do, God, in judgment against the wicked. Scriptures teach us that we will not only amen, but we will sing. It won't be a reluctant amen. It won't be a a, a kind of through your teeth amen. It will be a hearty amen accompanied with a song. A song of victory over those who are hostile toward God. Um, Let's say it this way. Those who we right now know and love. If God does not save them. We are not only amening. Ready for this? We are also participating in judgment. 
We're not just saying, yes, God, do it, and, and whatever you do is good. By our being in Christ, we also participate in judgment of the wicked, meaning we will judge the earth. The righteous sit with Christ on his seat and pronounce judgment with him upon those who are hostile toward him. Judgment's a difficult word for us to swallow, isn't it? For people in, it's, it's a difficult doctrine for people inside and outside of the church. Those outside of the church to cry, who are you to judge me? Only God can judge me. Uh, and they may not even say that. Uh, those inside the church say, judge not lest you be judged. Both sides seem to desire to steer clear of anything that looks and smells like judgment. Many churches, in order to avoid the doctrine of judgment, have as their slogan, come just as you are. Uh, there is even one church on Chester, and there's a sign outside of their, their, their church that says, no perfect people allowed. You can come in and never expect any or experience any kind of judgment anytime ever. That, that's what that's what um, churches that's what I should, that's what uh, let's say this, that's what bad churches want to do. Those outside the church use as their slogan. Forgive me, I'm old. I'm about to be 44. So if this slogan is old, then then forgive me, Tony. It's for us. Um, they, they, those outside the church they use slogans like "Do you." Is that old? Yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, do and be whatever you want to do and be, and no one has the right to judge you for who you want to do and be, or what you want to do and be, I should say it that way. Saints, the truth from God's word is that God has the right to judge. Not only this, but that we will join him and participate in his judgment against the wicked. God has actually revealed that it is both, it, let's do it this way, it is our right and our responsibility to judge. Let's let's take two examples. We're going to use the church and then the world. We'll go back and forth. First Corinthians five. Paul calls the church of Corinth to execute judgment upon persons in the church who were acting immoral. The church apparently was reluctant to judge to judge the simple matter. They believed that they were acting in some in, in some accordance with love by not judging those who are participating in sin. Paul corrects. Listen to this. Paul judges the church. For their false judgment. Telling the church that their judgment is an incorrect judgment. Not only that, it's an immoral judgment. Paul judges the church for not judging the sin and saying that your lack of judgment is a sinful judgment. He says, you are acting unrighteously if you don't execute judgment. But then he makes a statement that I think needs to be clarified. What business, he says in 1 Corinthians 5.12, what business of mine is it to judge outsiders? You heard that? It's not my business to judge those who are outside of the church. Now, if you hear that, what do you automatically conclude? Well, they do whatever they want to do. Paul is not saying that the believer has no right to tell the unbeliever to repent. We should. Paul tells uh, men of Athens and kings like Agrippa, to repent of their sin and turn to Christ. What is this? It's a judgment. When you tell someone that they are in sin, you are judging them. That's why they said, don't judge me. You have no right to judge me or to tell me that I've sinned. Yes, you do. You are agents of God. As I said before in the past, you are spiritual lawyers. You have been employed by God to go and tell the world that they have violated his law. And that they are in danger of eternal punishment. 
Paul says, but we don't have the right to, we don't, here's what he says, we don't have authority over those outside of the church in the way that we have authority of those who are inside of the church. Meaning, those who are outside, we can't excommunicate them. But those who are inside, we can excommunicate them and send them outside to those who will be judged. We have the right and responsibility as spiritual lawyers to tell men of their spiritual condition, call them to repent before they face the judgment of God. And when they do, if they don't repent, we will not only amen God's righteous judgment, we will participate in it and sing over it. The verdict will be cast. I say this with 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 reluctance, but it's only because of God's word that I have to say it. It will be cast upon those who we love right now. If they don't repent of their sin. They are revealing by their lack of repentance, hostility toward God, by not honoring him as God alone, by not honoring his day, by not reverencing his presence. Um, Saints, how do we reverence God's presence? I said this earlier in the first point, by gathering for worship to honor him. We believe that that there is no other time nor place when we are in the presence of God than when the saints gather for worship and worship God as God has commanded us to worship him. We are then reverencing God's presence. Those who refuse to do so are refusing to honor his presence. They may say God's everywhere, but not like he is here today. Are you with me? It's hard for us to say now because they're still alive. And praise God, they're still alive. You're still praying for them and you should continue to pray for them. You're still witnessing to them and you should continue to witness to them. But if they do not repent, if you are in Christ, you will not weep for them on the final day of judgment. You will participate in judging them with Christ. They may even be mindful of the times that you shared the gospel with them and they refused. But here, and they still won't repent. They will still eternally be hostile toward God. They're not sorry when they're judged. They're even, we'll get to this, they're they're going to be even just as, if not even more, hostile toward God, even in judgment. You will say, uh, if they only had the chance, they would have changed. No, they would have never changed. Unless God does something for them now. You will add your amen to the countless amens who will be standing with you on the sea of glass. You will not weep. You will sing for for glory and victory. And you will participate in that judgment. And you don't need to wait for that day in order to agree with God in his judgment. Your witness to your unbelieving ones. You're calling them to repent. That's your agreement with God now. When you call them to turn from their sin, that's you right now here today agreeing with God. It's your responsibility to warn them of the coming judgment. The time to pray is now. The time for words are now. Because there will be a time where there will be no more words and no more prayers. It will only be amen. When they call you and and talk to you about their sin, don't laugh with them. Don't chuck it up with them. 
Don't make it seem as though life is going to continue as it always has been and there will be no change. We are waiting for time at any moment to stop and for eternity to begin. We don't have time to play with the wicked. We don't have time to play with those who are hostile toward God. The urgency of time is now. As we march forward, we will consider the judgment. And it may make many of us uncomfortable, but we must remember that God is holy. All of his judgments are right and true. In church, we have to say this. When we excommunicate, we make a judgment of the soul based upon unrepented sin. The person who persists in sin, who continues to pursue wickedness and will not listen to the call to turn around, reveals that they are in fact children of the devil and not children of God. Paul makes this powerful statement for us who in the church, who, 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 for those of us who go, judge not, lest you be judged, right? Paul says, do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 1, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? For those of you who are like, we're not going to judge the world, Paul says we do. Um, and if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Paul's saying, there's sin in your midst, do something about it. If you can't handle the small sin, remember or realize the fact that you're going to be judging the whole world at one point. If you can't handle the small matter, how are you going to handle the big matter? Judge the person's sin. Do it. You, because you will stand and judge the world one day. You will one day participate in the eternal destiny of man. So then we should not be apprehensive of telling someone, you better turn from your sin. Or you will suffer judgment. Paul's saying, do it. It's a small, um, it's practice for a big, a bigger responsibility. And, and, and in order to heighten the, where am I going? In order to heighten the senses of the magnitude of our right and responsibility to judge, Paul says in verse 3, or do you not know that we will also judge angels? Paul is saying, take care of this matter in the church, judge it, because there are bigger things ahead that you will participate in, and you won't be able to shy away from them. Namely, you will judge angels. What does that mean? We will judge fallen angels. We will judge demons for their rebellion against God. When we are confronted with judgment, don't get queasy. Excuse me, I've got to go out first. No, stay here. Endure it. Embrace it. It's not something that you wait to participate in heaven one day. It's something that we do now. First Corinthians 5 and 6, the apostles call the church to make judgments on those who are carrying out a sinful relationship. A man has his father's wife. Paul's saying, wait, you're allowing this to happen? Do something about it. Because if you don't, then sin has the potential to spread throughout the church. When you don't address sin, when you don't confront it, it spreads throughout the church and the church becomes unhealthy. He says, your boasting is no good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens a whole lump? Remove the wicked man from among you. Take it out before it makes everyone else sick. Judge it. Not judging it because you don't want to be a church that doesn't judge. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. When we allow sin to persist in a church, the church becomes unhealthy. You don't want elders who will not address your sin. Amen. You don't want members who will close their eyes whenever they see sin and say, not my business. It is your business. Unhealthy churches 
are such because of a, re- a number of, of reasons, un- uh, doctrine, structure, but most of all, sin. And when a church persists and permits sin, even though it may be a, a church of standing room only, meaning every chair filled, if there is sin in that church that is unaddressed, that is not judged, it's an unhealthy dying church. We could have five people in here, every single one of you 70 years old, and be more alive than a church full of 1,000 people that permit sin in their church. The point is that we must be active in allowing ourselves to judge and be judged. And we judge Christians in accordance with what is becoming of a Christian. How am I supposed to act? Well, God tells us, doesn't he? So you have a standard by which to judge me. How are you supposed to act? Well, God tells us, doesn't he? Therefore, I have a standard by which to judge how you are to act. If we are judging or observing a brother and sister who is going the wrong way, it is your right and your responsibility to call them back. And we must not be offended when we practice the one another another commands of Scripture. We must teach. We must correct. We must admonish. And when those things happen, we must be thankful that someone has taken upon themselves both their right and their responsibility to help me see the right way. Not offended. Don't use the excuse. It's none of my business. I don't want to offend anyone. I know I'm not perfect. So who who am I? It is your business. The members made it your business when they were baptized in front of you. The members made it your business when they stood in front of you and gave them your testimony. It's your business. Be all up in their business. It's okay. You're supposed to. You're standing as a witness was your commitment to them that you would help them walk with Christ. It's your business. Um, What if they get offended? They're going to get offended. Get over it. What if I get offended? You're going to get offended. Get over it. Grow up. Learn how to take correction and grow from it rather than getting corrected and acting like children. Our children sometimes act better than we than we do when they're corrected, don't they? They take it. Next day, they're back to normal. Maybe in the next few hours, they're back to normal. We have a lot to learn from our little ones, don't we? I'm afraid of I'm afraid of confronting. Then ask God to help you communicate. Ask God to help you to not offend when you correct and rebuke. If they are in Christ, they'll take it. They'll embrace it. They'll see past the the, the tone and they'll embrace the heart behind it and say, thank you for, for, for loving me enough to warn me. And no, you're not perfect. God does not require perfection as a prerequisite for correct for correction. God does not say before you correct someone, you must be perfect. No. Rebuke, encourage, admonish. The only prerequisite for correction is this love. Do you love me? Then if you see me going the wrong way, correct me. And do not for one second expect me that when you correct me, go, well, what about you? I'm not going to do that. God help me. And neither should we. When we're corrected, we should. And they're no saint either. Who do they think they are? No, not in the least. The only prerequisite for correction is love. Some are not coming across as loving as we would like to be. Like them to be. 
But nonetheless, as believers in Christ, as those who are in Christ, we must embrace and accept correction. Correction is judgment. And it's good for our souls. Number three and finally. Pray. Evangelize. Pray for God to judge the unrepentant. Pray. Evangelize. Pray for God to judge the unrepentant. I should say it this way. Pray for God to save. Pray that God would judge the unrepentant. This will be the shortest point. The four living creatures appear again and they serve as those who give the golden bowls to the angels. The bowls of judgment from God are... Here's what they're meant to communicate. We see these bowls. They're filled with judgment. They are filled with judgment as an answer from God to our prayer. God is judging because of the wicked. Uh, Wrath and judgment are coming also, though, because of the prayers of the saints. This is confirmed. Because the bowls in chapter 15 and 16 are also, they're viewed as bowls of incense. That is that smoke that rises, as it were, to heaven. It is the prayers of the saints. Revelation chapter 5 and 6 and 8 are all speaking of the saints who pray to God for retribution. Let's go to the first one, though, and and the only one that we'll consider. Revelation 6, 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained, maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, here's their prayer. This is a prayer. How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The saints are pleading, appealing, praying to God for judgment. This may also be a difficult point to accept. You should pray for judgment. We often only isolate, categorize prayers into prayers of salvation. And we don't consider the fact that we should also be praying that God judge the wicked. That God give to the wicked, those who are hostile toward him, those who are unrepentant to him, that God give to them that which they deserve in acting in hostility toward the Holy One. It is good. Pray for the conversion of sinners. We're also taught to pray that God's judgment be executed upon the wicked. We are to pray that opposition to God would cease. Yes, by conversion. But if not by conversion, then by judgment. And there is no sin in those prayers. God judge those who will not repent. You act in accordance with God's word. Pray for those who are hostile toward God. Pray for those who are in our families. Pray for our close ones. Pray for them. Pray that the Lord of the harvest... That that he would send workers into the earth to save those whom he has decreed to save. Pray for opportunities to witness to them. Take advantage of those opportunities when they come. May God give you boldness. Pray that God would give you boldness to witness to them when those opportunities come. May God give you wisdom. Pray for wisdom. That, That you may be gentle as doves and speak to them in truth and in love. Pray for gentleness. Pray for love. Pray that God would also judge those who will not receive his word. Those who refuse to repent. Those who are hostile toward him. Those who scoff at God. Pray that God would bring them to their knees. 
by any means. In Revelation 6, the saints on the altar, they're not calling for revenge. This, this is not pray for revenge. They're appealing to God to demonstrate His holiness through justly judging His persecutors, their persecutors. It's not a cry for bitter personal revenge by those who have been heavenly exalted. No, because they're in the heavenly exalted state. There is no sin there. Revenge would be a sin. The prayer is for the wretched reputation of God to be upheld. The courts of earth have judged the righteous as wicked. Therefore, God, vindicate us, your people. Show that you are, in fact, holy by judging the wicked for their wicked judgment of us. They're appealing to the holiness of God. They're appealing for wrongdoers to be brought to justice. Let me close with this. Isn't that what the psalmists do in the Psalms over and over again? It didn't, Scott, it didn't take you very long to find one. Psalm 7, 9. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. You have appointed judgment. The Lord judges the people. The evil of the wicked have come to an end, but establish the righteous. Uh, verse 12. A man does not repent. God will sharpen his sword. It sounds like everything I just said in one verse. The psalmist and plenty others are appealing to God's holiness through judgment of the wicked. He says, if they don't repent, God will sharpen his sword. But woe to the one who does not repent. This is David's appeal. And it's a righteous one. No one would accuse David of any sin in this prayer. God, may those who perpetuate hostility towards you repent. And if they do not repent, then let your judgment come upon them. O Lord, holy and true. That is a just prayer. Saints, we commit no sin by praying such things. Rather, our prayers are aligned with God's will. In closing, will God save everyone? No. Will he save a countless many? Yes. What will become of those who God has not decreed to save? They will be judged, and all of God's judgments are true. We will amend his judgments. And we must pray that God executes his judgments upon those who are hostile toward him. This is what is being emphasized here in these three verses. Verse 8 emphasizes that though God commissions his angels to judge, God is the one who is judging. Seven angels and the four living creatures, they are carrying out God's judicial judicial designs. And as they go out, all that John can see from outside of the temple, imagine they've gone out, the temple is open, all John can see is a cloud of smoke. He can't even see inside. Here's the other thing, and no one is allowed inside. They've all gone from his presence as God's holiness is being displayed by wrath. And there is smoke which, which represents the glory of God emanating from his presence. And no one is allowed in. Because no one can stand when, God's, when the fullness of God's holiness is on display. Saints, we will, we, will no, we will not cry on that day. Weep now. 
Because there will be a time when there will be no more tears. God is holy. All his judgments are right and true. We will one day agree and all men and sing with God. As we declare with him victory over all of wickedness. As we participate in that judgment of the wicked and angels who are wicked, fallen ones. In the meantime, pray for God's patience on them. That God will be just as merciful to them as he has been by allowing them to live. Pray that God would help us to be faithful and bold witnesses. Pray that God would be just towards those who are hostile toward him. And in all this, may the holy God, the one true God, be glorified. Let us pray.